Welcome to In Conversation, a podcast about politics, current affairs, and the theory of general relations. In this episode, we talk about the ongoing shakeup of White House senior staff and Trump's new immigration proposal. My name is Christian Paz Lang. And I'm Yasser Batalvi. And this is In Conversation. <laughs> so hype. So hype. So we're back at the table uh, talking about new developments in the Trump administration. Uh, a lot has happened, um, some of it bizarre, but very interesting. And uh, there's really a lot to talk about. Yeah, all of this has been happening since like basically the same day that we released our past episode. So there's been a lot of drama packed into like literally 10 days. Um, yeah. Well, more since then, but 10 days in which the, all this drama managed to play itself out. Uh, basically, it began with... Uh, the hiring of Anthony Scaramucci, which led to the resignation of Sean Spicer. Ah, the mooch. <laughs> who uh, who did not think that Scaramucci, um, and it seems that he did not think uh, with good, with good, well, he thought with good reason, that Scaramucci would be uh, a drain mm-hmm. and a, a distraction and would actually make things worse in the uh, communications office. Uh, and Sean Spicer has, yeah, definitely probably turned out to be right because right. Scaramucci... Um, very quickly, uh, you know, hit the Sunday shows and <laughs> started talking about how he would fire all the leakers. And then he had this infamous, now infamous interview uh, with, I think his name is Ryan Lizza from The New Yorker, in which he really, really gave it to uh, Steve Bannon. Right. Uh, and uh, Ryan's previous. And Ryan's and, previous. Um, yep. The rest of all the fellas at the West Wing. Yeah. Um, I think some of the quotes are. Uh, Ryan's previous is a paranoid schizophrenic. Yes. Um, yes. He said he isn't trying to... Uh, yeah, we might leave that off the record. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's it's a, it's, rec- readily, it's readily available if you want to read it. Right. Um, we can, I don't know, put the link in the... You know, Definitely not during family time, however. No, <laughs> no, don't read it to your kids. Because I know there are a lot of parents listening to this podcast. That's right. <laughs> anyway, so just a couple of days after that, despite this becoming quickly public and almost immediately condemned from all quarters... Ryan's previous was still fired as chief of staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so Scaramucci obviously still had some sway in that. And uh, he was replaced by none other than uh, your Massachusetts compatriot. Mr. John Kelly. Mr. John Kelly. General John Kelly. General. I think I it's important so. to know. Yeah, General John Kelly, um, meanwhile, was the director of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and he moved up uh, to the ranks of the chief of staff. I don't know if that's up, to be honest. It's right. It, it would traditionally maybe, be up. Maybe but... it's lateral, like, or maybe it's even down. Yeah, you're right. You're yeah, right. Sure. but it's a, it's a, it's not a, a, a bureaucratic position, which I, I guess the secretary ships are usually. It's a, it's a purely political position, right? He's just there being the chief of staff to organize the staff. Yeah, in the White House. Yeah, that's fair. But it is uh, they're both political positions in the sense that yeah, the yeah. head of the Department of uh, Homeland Security. But the would chief also of staff doesn't have any formal uh, control over policy or anything like that, like the no, no, Secretary no. of Homeland Security would. Right. Right. Essentially. Yeah. Um, so essentially, this uh, John Kelly fella uh, comes in and decides that he is only going to take up the job of chief of staff if. He is allowed to replace the director of communications, who happens to be the mooch, Anthony Scaramucci. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so promptly, Anthony Scaramucci is removed. Yeah. So he's really, uh, Scaramucci, that is, has really sown the seeds of his own destruction, mm-hmm. I guess, by getting rid of Rance Priebus, who he obviously hated uh, and didn't want to be involved with the administration anymore. But then John Kelly comes in and John Kelly says, 
well, I don't know if he just doesn't like Scaramucci personally or he looked back and he says, oh, this is the guy who fired my predecessor. Right. <laughs> or maybe he just thought that the direction he was leading the the communications for sure. uh, wing of the of the White House and he had already, was not a good dis- uh, direction. Yeah, he had already made himself a huge distraction, <laughs> right? And uh, right, obviously. his style was, was Trump, but without all the, uh, well... I mean, the apparently redeeming qualities of Trump. Right. I think the the funny thing to look at is essentially when you're chief of staff, traditionally you are the de facto boss of all the staff at the White House. Yeah. Um, that is what the chief of staff would mean. Yeah. And Anthony Scaramucci decides uh, to display himself as being probably the worst person to work. Um, you would not want him as your subordinate, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting yeah. it. And Kelly, be an employee. and Kelly has shown himself to be, I mean, it seems like the condition of him signing on was that he would have almost total control over the staff um, and over the goings on in the Oval Office that uh, that no one has been able to have so far. Rance Priebus was, by all, by all accounts, an extremely weak chief of staff and that uh, right. the Oval Office just seemed to be uh, open to anyone. Jared Kushner or Ivanka would just walk in. Steve Bannon would just walk in. Um, and then people would walk out and again, and there was no so, sort of centralized control over meetings, briefings, right. uh, and announcements and stuff like that. I mean, and frankly, I think that has more to say about these characters than it does about I think it has more to say about Trump. But, right. But him as a wasn't character able well. to leverage anything in terms of uh, trying to at least mitigate mm-hmm. that aspect of the Trump presidency. Uh, but well, it seems well, like I mean, Kelly has really given it a go. Like, we, right. we, we, there were reports today that he's listening in on phone calls that Trump is having, having, and that the doors of the Oval Office are now relatively closed, and you got to have a meeting, Mm -hmm. uh, you got to have an appointment set up, and uh, that even applies apparently to Jared and Ivanka. Hmm. I don't know how long this will last. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 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 But, I mean, you know, Trump likes likes generals. Yeah, So maybe maybe he's the man for the job. He may be, um, at least for a while. But I think traditionally what's tough about uh, being chief of staff is, of course, managing all the people walking through or Mm -hmm. desiring to walk through the Mm -hmm. door of the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. With a Trump administration and with the Trump as president, it becomes exceptionally difficult. So I want to give Priebus credit in the sense that if he was chief of staff under another president, he may have perhaps done been able to do his job better, mm-hmm. but like if you being a, the chief of staff to an exceptional president sure. requires an exceptional uh, sure. kind of role. An exceptional in the sense that he is an exception, not that he is. <laughs> right, not that he's exceptional, but that he's an exception to the, the traditional uh, roles that a president would play. Right, right. So maybe Priebus was doing his best, but now, I mean, Kelly is obviously taking a different approach. He's not the same chief of staff that, that Priebus was, I don't, right. I don't think. Right, I mean, if he's listening to phone calls uh, and trying to keep uh, something... Um, of a grasp on uh, how the how the White House interacts with the outside world. Yeah, um, he's definitely the right person for the job. Well, and now we now we just have to wonder. Um, well, who's who's going to get the comms director job now? So that's one thing. But mm-hmm. then also, like, is Kelly is Kelly going to go after Trump's phone? Is he going to try to? You right. know, he's going to shake the president up in the morning. Right. The president, president, Mr. President, time to get up. It's time to you know do your work, and then he's going to you know casually steal his phone and yeah. <laughs> and walk away so that Trump can't tweet in the morning because that's that's the problem that uh, that's the root of so many problems that they've had you know Trump is just manufacturing issues and manufacturing contradictions within his own messaging 
Right. And so it'll that'll be like the obvious, like the most obvious I, case of whether or not Kelly can impose his will. Right. I think where I disagree is uh, I would say that it may be in a big picture uh, a negative, except um, for Trump and his uh, self interest, it seems to be quite a positive because exactly uh, this this controversy and this ability to tweet um, to create controversy is um, what his base uh, likes and right. um, it's what they voted for. Yeah. Um, because he continued to say that he would tweet, um, and he's doing it, mm-hmm. um, and his base is eating it up, and they like it. They like that they can be connected to their president in the sense that uh, nothing necessarily has to come out of the press secretary's mouth when it can just come straight from the president himself. Sure, sure. So, but it's still, it's, I mean, it's still good. Like you said, in the long run, it's it's probably a problem. Oh, in the in the short run, it's a problem too. But I'm yeah. just not sure how much of a problem it is for Trump's uh, numbers. Yeah. Um, so to get down to you know all politics being local in that sense, I mean, if yeah. Trump's uh, thinking about his own base, I'm not sure if it's a big. Yeah. Um, but perhaps issue. ironically, um, it seems like Kelly's job is not a chief of staff in the sense he's not his problem doesn't appear to be his underlings. Hmm. But it's you know his employer, the, the president. He, that's okay. the most important managing relationship, right. as it is, of course, with most chiefs of staff. But uh, usually, there's a little more um, refereeing of fights between even further subordinates. You know, right? So um, it seems like John Kelly's really the chief of staff to the president, or instead of being chief of staff to the president, he's the chief of staff of the president. Okay. <laughs> um, Maybe running yeah. the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. interesting. Uh, the last thing to talk about. With this is just that it adds um, it adds one more president or one more um, military man to the mix, or even, or it brings an existing one closer uh, to the, to the center of power, right. um, and that's in any other situation would be worrying, but in this situation is viewed by a lot of people as as the good thing, right? We were we were excited, or um, maybe. We were made less uncertain mm-hmm. when uh, Kelly was nominated, when Mattis was nominated. Right. These guys were, you know, professionals and everything like that. And yet to have all these generals involved is not something that's totally normal, nor something that right. really should be normal, right? Um, I think the second part of it is a, is a good question. I'm not... I think the reason we were all excited when we were hearing about Mattis and um, people like Mike Flynn and yeah. people like uh, General John Kelly is essentially because there's a certain degree of decorum uh, and professionalism that goes with being part of the military. And uh, that is what was so lacking in the Trump campaign and in the Trump White House. Uh, I'm a big fan of John Kelly, and that's because uh, there's there's one incident in particular, um, and a major one at that. Boston Proud. <laughs> Yeah, that too, Boston Proud, um, is when uh, James Comey got uh, when James Comey was fired, the FBI director. Uh, John Kelly happened to news reports uh, ended up verifying this, call him up and ask him about the details of his firing, um, and asking him um, how Comey felt and uh, whether he thought the firing was legitimate, and uh, whether um, Kelly asked uh, he should continue working for the administration as. Um, the director of the DHS. So uh, the second part of the story is what Comey must have said to him in reply. And we're not so sure what the reply was, but I think Comey's also a decent man. And so he must have said, you should stay at your job as director of the department because we need good men on the inside. Yeah. Uh, And that's uh, essentially how it was borne out. And um, that's why I think that as long as you have people who are concerned about um, the big ideas, 
like being fair and just, um, then people like Comey and, and Kelly will end up being uh, the people who rule the day. Um, it all that matters is whether or not they can get a good grasp or ground, or they can gain ground in terms of influence on the president and the White House. Right. So you don't see the the military aspect being important at all, other than the qualities it tends to lend to them, right? I think that the military aspect is um, secondary at, at the very least. Yeah, in essence, if you're if you're a military man and you're serving in the White House, uh, the reason why it's it's allowed or um, not not very discussed is as an as a concern is probably just because uh, the expectation is that if you're part of if you were formerly part of the military, um, you would be able to disconnect that yeah. um, experience yeah, and bias is. from your day to day advice. Or, or skills and you know whatever you're doing organization let's say or, or something or the other there is something to be or said at least about that there isn't some kind of split loyalty that you would have in you know other countries that don't have the same tradition of civilian leadership and right um, military subordination but uh, I you know I think I often I think I tend to agree with you that the these concerns about the military are usually overblown um, mm-hmm. but there is still something sort of in principle um, to do uh, maybe with like the separation of powers and right. and about uh, the role that the military should play mm-hmm. in a in a in a well-run democracy that makes me uneasy um, at, in the, at, at the least um, when I see so many generals taking an active part um, in political affairs. Right, I I agree, and I think that I would rather have generals than have some of the people that Trump would pick who wouldn't be generals. Um, yeah. Maybe not in every other case. If but, we had but, better choices, but, otherwise, I probably. But I, you see why that's sort of like an unfortunate thing that you have to say. I agree. Right? It's an unfortunate yeah. thing because he's having to because the people he ends up picking are um, much worse than this than the slight amount of uh, unease we you, you might have. And I don't share the same unease because at the end of the day, the American military has civilian control uh, in the mm-hmm. sense that it's true that the president is. But if the civilians are all former generals. Yeah, and so this is the distinction I was going to highlight. Once you leave the military, um, you're considered a civilian, and it's and the reason is because uh, one, uh, I think a society shouldn't bar somebody's future occupation based on a past one. So the difference is, in essence, that if you serve in the military, you may still um, be just as as efficient and productive and um, uh, serving when you're a civilian in the white house just just because your past is part of the military doesn't necessarily mean that now that's something that you carry for the rest of your life and perhaps shouldn't be shouldn't be allowed to be um it's an interesting debate that crops up usually when um the secretary of defense position is uh, on the table and that's just because the secretary of defense ought to be a civilian Mm -hmm. um by definition, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't have former military experience. Yeah. I think on balance, that's true that there isn't too much of a problem, but that doesn't mean I don't think that each case should not be scrutinized <laughs> and for that kind of danger. And also that when you reach a, a certain level of former military participation, which in the case of, of Trump, it was it was quite, there was three, right? Mike Flynn, right. Um, Kelly, and uh, Mattis. So I mean that's that's a pretty significant portion, right? And all in extremely important positions, Agreed. right? And so I definitely think that there is an issue uh, once we get to that level of significance where the military starts to be comfortable with 
first performing its military duties and then knowing that they can then go onto a political position and wield uh, a, a different kind of influence, but obviously um, still uh, influence themselves by their past service. I happen to agree in principle, except I think in reality what ends up happening is sometimes uh, high-level generals in the military are not the first people to even resort to a military option sure. to, a, to as a solution to a problem. I think uh, just as often as that, you could have a civilian, maybe even someone like Steve Bannon, um, who ends up putting the military option on the table first and prior to anybody else doing so in the same room. So in essence, you can have um, an an administration or, or even a cabinet or you can have uh, your trusted advisors be all part of the military and have it have much effect or no effect or you can have them all be civilians and maybe very oriented no. towards picking a military solution and still have uh, I think a, a different effect because totally, it's labels I think what makes the difference I'll agree with you that uh, in the specific instances of you know choosing war and peace or choosing you know what what way to apply force uh, there may be no difference between a civilian and right. a general, or there may be an even positive uh, difference because the general knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. right? But in terms of creating, in terms of impacting the culture of the cabinet mm-hmm. and of the upper echelons of the administration, I think it does matter that there are like a lot of military people, and especially it matters for someone like Kelly because military officers or former military officers come into political positions, uh, and and their only experience of power. Right. is uh, from within a hierarchy. And really, the only hierarchy that exists in the administration is the president's on top, and then all the secretaries are theoretically equal. Right. Right. And so that may mean that even within their own um, branches of government, uh-huh. they will st- try to establish um, a, a form of a structure that may not be best suited uh, to what the... Uh, department is actually meant to do mm-hmm. and then beyond even that when they're trying to coordinate with each other mm-hmm. how are they going to figure out what what the hierarchy is when they're right. all supposed to be they're all of the same rank technically mm-hmm. they're all secretaries and so that the difficulty in switching from an organizational structure that is pure hierarchy to one that is uh, supposed to be a table of, of equals with with the president at the head right that's a real another difficulty and so uh, in a situation where it's not pure military people, mm-hmm. you have a clash of those two organizational structures uh, where I can tell you, I'm guaranteeing it, that Kelly's going to have a lot of trouble trying to oppose a hierarchical, a hierarchical structure if he doesn't tend to do that. Yeah, I mean, I'm on your side for, for the most part. I think that usually that's that competitiveness and that uh, form of competing ideas can lead down a dangerous path where one isn't quite sure whose idea will gain merit or precedence. Mm-hmm. Um, except most of these decisions about foreign policy, national security, are made um, by the National Security Council, uh, which advises the president um, on these matters. And it's made up by, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's, the, prim- it's the primary um, advisor, advisory group. Mm-hmm. And um, it's uh, made up with, of some folks who are heads of these departments, yeah. like the director of um, uh, the uh, the director of national intelligence, let's say, yeah. um, but it's also made up of the joint chiefs of staff, which yeah. are military. Um, it, but at the same time, it's made up of uh, the vice president, the attorney general, the chief of staff to the White House, um, 
as well as all, you know generals of let's say the central command or pacific command etc so the the decisions that are made about um how to approach or attack pun intended um national security issues <laughs> is essentially uh one that's that's i think made uh with a much higher focus on advice that we're getting that the president is getting from the national security council than they might be getting from just any odd um head of department maybe maybe I still think it would be it, it, there is something to to think about and to discuss when you when you start having uh, a, a good deal of military commanders in uh, supposedly civilian positions. I think that's totally fair because at the end of the day, if you're getting military advice from the National Security Council full of military you're folk, also from, and you're also getting it from military folk who are yeah. uh, advising you in other aspects, then you might run into some trouble. Sure. Well, uh, perhaps looking to uh, distract us from what might have originally been a distraction or whatever, uh, or perhaps trying to change the channel in some other way, uh, Trump has unveiled uh, for the first time what is a, a legitimate immigration strategy. Um, right. Of course, it, it came along with the wall. You know, We're still doing the wall. <laughs> the wall isn't really an immigration strategy. It That's is. A, of course it is. The wall is a... Um, an anti-immigration strategy. The, the wall isn't there to prevent uh, legal, legal immigrants. immigrants. It's exactly. Prevent, and, that's, uh, and that's what is new about, about this. Because right. he's yeah. only been focused on illegal immigration up until this point. Exactly. So, yeah. so I think the immigration strategy is the bill because that's obviously the lawful immigration. It's yeah. the unlawful immigration that the wall solves, yeah. which I don't see as immigration to begin with. That's unlawful. Y- yes. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. <laughs> Why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> I just, I just think that uh, that that an immigration bill obviously deals with lawful immigration, and it's totally different from keeping illegals out by building a wall. Yeah, yeah. I because agree. that has no, that has nothing to do with green card policy, for example. No, no. But I mean, it, it always has been part of the wider discussion about immigration. Agreed. Even though it's not technically immigration. Yes. Although one person is migrating from one country to the next, just Fair. the government doesn't really know about it. <laughs> Fair. So, so it really is a type of immigration, but yeah. not the type that you'd be able to solve with a bill. Anyway, so putting the wall aside, maybe then for now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, we'll wall, the up... wall got a lot of funding, by the way, in this omnibus yeah, like bill. Yeah, uh, 1.6 billion. billion or something like that. Yeah. Interesting that um, that whole Mexico is going to pay for the wall thing never panned out. No, and in fact, what we've learned today is that Trump knew it was never going to pan out. Pan out. Uh, this is, these are from uh, leaked transcripts uh, that the Washington Post published um, about conversations primarily with the Mexican president uh, and the prime minister of Australia. Um, and actually, we could talk about that for like a hot minute, Yasser. Um, assuming that people know essentially what, what was going on in those conversations uh essentially trump was talking to uh the mexican president and saying right you know it's fine if you don't want to pay for the wall but just don't tell it to the press because the press is going to run with that oh wow yeah yeah jeez yeah anyway i'm first being made aware but the the real but the real (laughs) issue is that uh the confident these confidential phone calls the transcript of these phone calls somehow made it into the hands of journalists and so a lot of people especially um those on the right that dislike mm-hmm. Trump but um, are in general more uh, hawkish about national security issues and leaking and stuff like that, they've right. they've totally gone the other way on this and they say, hey, these these shouldn't be leaked. There are some things that shouldn't be leaked, right? Right, because this is theoretically uh, going to be making 
negotiations more difficult. It's going to be Trump is going to be oh, or, or officials are going to be making are going to be able to be less candid mm-hmm. in their conversations, and people are going to be less candid with them because they know that hey now we're now we're leaking private diplomatic conversations. That's right. Now what we're on the record basically about, about everything. Um, the way I see it is um, m- many of these conversations that occur. Uh, with foreign heads of state, they occur on secure encrypted lines, yep. and the conversation itself is classified. Yep. Um, however, when the conversation is transcribed, uh, sometimes the transcription is not classified; it's just held as confidential. And this, this was classified and, and confidential. The transcript as yeah. well. Yeah. So essentially, when stuff like this happens, and it has kind of to uh, do with going back to what we were talking about in terms of John Kelly listening on the phone, yeah. is a lot of times it'll be very. Um, efficient to have um, people who have those national security clearances to listen in on the line or mm-hmm. to, to have these transcripts available to them, um, which is why it'll change a lot of pans and um, spread widely where transcripts like these will be translated into some foreign policy prescription that goes to career diplomats at the State Department yeah. to execute, yeah. etc. Um, there's There's a certain degree of inherent challenge in being able to keep conversations like this tight-lipped. Um, but there is reason to do so. There is absolute reason to do so. Yeah. I, as much as I would want um, a transparency, I think the precedence of having um, conversations like these be uh, absolutely classified yeah. um, for only a few years uh, means that exactly what you People were saying. People are just more flexible, you, right? They're right, you'll be able to, to have an open have conversation. Conversations, exactly. So I think that's definitely something to worry about um, in this respect. But even you know more cynically than that, even like if we're not just concerned with how effectively the United States can pursue its foreign policy right. through, through talking to other people. More cynically than that, it's going to mean that Trump is now justified in being a lot less transparent in these sort of conversations. Like maybe he won't have uh, minute takers there. Maybe mm-hmm. he'll limit to the absolute minimum of people in the, people in the room. And then we're going to have even less information, even less indication about what it is that they're actually talking about. I think that we'll... That's, um, that's going to be a problem. I think so, uh, in a general sense. However, with the Trump administration, I still continue to believe that uh, as far as uh, Trump wants to clamp down on transparency, people are, are, are going to continue to leak um, information. And here's why. Right, I but think now, that, it's, now it's like, well, if you assume that everyone in that room is going right. to leak, now there's three people in that room rather than eight. Right. right. And, I th- and I still think that the possibility that even one of those three uh, leaks information is still high. And, and the reason is because when you're um, someone who works at the White House and you are watching Trump, uh, Trump's presidency play out, uh, I think a lot of what matters is how much importance you give to uh, that person's presidency and their effect on America yeah. uh, in terms of politics and society in general. So in other words, if you really believe that your job is is the best and you're in the right place and you believe wholeheartedly in Trump and his agenda, it's less likely that you're going to leak something. Mm-hmm. Um, except when you're uh, sort of halfway there or three quarters there and you're approached by, let's say, the editor-in-chief of the New York Times who calls you out for a drink and says, if you tell me what the president said to the head of state of Mexico, you will save American democracy single-handedly. Uh, that's a pretty convincing argument, even yeah. if you have a slight amount of doubt about what it is that wow. you're doing or what kind of administration you're serving in. Yeah. Um, and I don't think people can have full faith in the Trump administration because any, any reasonable or rational person would look at a lot of the, the uh, confusion and chaos and, uh, and mix-ups and messes that are taking place and say, uh, am I really in the right place? Uh, should I really keep the secret? There's a, there's a certain degree of inherent um, trust that you need to have yeah. in the administration. Which definitely doesn't exist. 
Right. And uh, I mean, it's, it, the, the West Wing is a mess. No, from what and, I hear. And in fact, the, one of the things that people are talking about a lot with Kelly to to go back mm-hmm. to before we were talking about immigration and before we were talking about the transcripts uh, is that uh, this would discourage a lot of people. This whole episode with Scaramucci and with Spicer um, would discourage a lot of people from taking jobs in the West Wing. I mean, there was already enough problems with finding candidates oh, who were willing to, to do the job because there was such an, an, a pushback against Trump in right. the circles of people who would be qualified for these jobs that now what people are worried about is is that not only will be that they not be qualified, they, you won't have the best people in the job. That's almost guaranteed at this point. Yeah. But also that the qualities that are being incentivized, that are being encouraged, uh, I first heard about this, this idea in uh, one of Ezra Klein's pod- podcasts, um, the ideas that are being, or the uh, qu- qualities of the people that are being incentivized are basically only just loyalty to the president. And other than that, Trump couldn't care less what you actually think or believe or yeah. are, are able to do. Yeah. I think that it's an incredibly pressing problem. And um, I know about this because job security really matters. And um, being at the university I'm at, uh, considering that you have a university president um, who leaves uh, or is kicked out by the board of trustees every few years right. um in having this is the president you know, of the university total not the yeah the, yeah. the uh, you know the, the president, president of the right the university of the president uh, the president of the university <laughs> who, who um it directs you know strategic goals and is basically yeah. the person who's the ceo runs the show um when you switch someone like that around every year or every two years or you switch the ceo of a company around every year or every two years um people end up losing faith because someone who's going to take up that position in the future uh, is going to be a whole lot less qualified or less likely to want to take up that position if they are qualified uh, because there's no job security. Because mm-hmm. the president that's been said is um, you have seven presidents for why, a university in the last waste, seven years. Why waste my time with three right. months of doing nothing? Just Until trying I'm replaced to get the, again. Trying, yeah. to get the, trying to get your stuff in order. And then yeah. and, you're, and you're ineffective anyways because yeah. you've just come in and there's been an interim, someone or the other. Um, yeah. And with a CEO, it operates the same way because yeah. uh, investors are looking at that and saying, if you've had seven CEOs in seven years, that's not an indication of strength. Mm-hmm. It's an indication of weakness. And so we need to switch these roles around in talking about the White House because um, we are, we're switching around the board of trustees for a university sure. or the investors um, in a company yeah. uh, or in a CEO as essentially being um, the, the president occupying those roles and the people who work for them or who work for him. Uh, being the being the people that uh, will lose faith in the position that they're working for uh, because of the inherent lack of job stability. Yeah, you're right, and uh, and I, I think it's it's you know so much more important in in these sort of jobs. It just has been taken to the next level. Like there are, are reports recently, right. um, increasingly so, that Tillerson is is fed up. He's ready to yeah, resign. Heard about this he doesn't too. he doesn't want to do this stuff anymore. And then you consider, okay, well Tillerson's gone. Who's who's taking the job? You think Mitt Romney's going to take the job now? Oh, I don't right. think Mitt Romney's even going to take the bait you anymore. Like, you think Lindsey Graham or even like Marco Rubio would no. take that job? No, there's no, no. way. It would be a, right? it would so be a downgrade to, from basically anything that they're you, doing. You would it would be a downgrade in terms of competency, and it would be an upgrade in terms of um, like a blind loyalty to the to the president. Right. And so and that's I, extremely dangerous. Oh, I, I agree. And I think um, if you were asking the president, I think what he would say is. It doesn't really matter because to him it's the loyalty that's important. Exactly. Um, exactly. And that I think shows a a deep disregard for what of values should really drive American policy, domestic or foreign. Right. All right. Why don't we uh, take two steps back um, from 
staffing to transcripts are three steps from staffing to transcripts uh, to, <laughs> to immigration. Uh-huh. Uh, so the essence of the actual legal immigration plan right. um, is that it would cut down on immigration quite significantly by limiting the amount of green cards uh, that are available. Uh, and also it would introduce a points-based system that is uh, very similar to Canada. So I've sort of been struggling with this one because um, I've always thought that uh, the American system was was interesting coming from a Canadian perspective because I've I've grown up with a Canadian one, and I think that it works well for Canada, right? right? Even if it's not the most, uh, you know, it's not the most generous thing, right? And I, I've always thought that the States gets a bad rap, or a bad rep, because uh, it's always um, been criticized for not taking enough refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you consider that it's extremely generous with its immigration policy, and it right. always has been. Um, and so the, 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 the strange sort of uh, optimization or min-maxing or prioritization mm-hmm. is that Canada has, is, um, plays its cards really close to the chest, in terms of immigration, it only takes the best of the best. Okay. Um, I agree. Like you, yes, sir. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> and then... Tried hard to get here. But then but then it's, <laughs> it's a lot more generous with refugees. Hmm. And and so you have like a, a, a high, high and a low, low. Mm-hmm. I, I think but I have a point states, of contention here. But then the States is a lot more general with its immigration fair. policy and a lot more um, restrictive with its refugee one. I think that's fair. I think that the point of contention I'd have is in Canada, uh, I think Canada's um, fairly restrictive and competitive even on its refugee policy because Canada doesn't operate its refugee policy based on need. In essence, uh, it operates based on... No, I mean, um, it obviously still gets to basically choose because right. water. Exactly. <laughs> and so and so, um, when this uh, Syrian displacement was and is currently still taking place, uh, Canada sent over um, attaches to Jordan, where mm-hmm. all these Syrian refugees mm-hmm. were entering bring in, and they would all be here. vetted and yeah. uh, if they spoke English and had a lot of degrees and uh, were generally healthy. Well, no, that wasn't those um, weren't considerations. Well, there you at go, least not officially. <laughs> yeah, um, there were there were uh, some that were need based, and then um, there were some that were uh, even if, well, if those particular refu- ones. If you're a refugee, it is need. That's the point. That's agreed, why you but, qualify for being uh, for asylum. Uh, fair enough. Except there. Are th- hundreds of thousands of refugees yeah. and Canada's only going to accept let's say 10,000 of them yeah. then uh, Canada's evaluating maybe not those specific criteria but they're evaluating things like do you have a family are you a single male yes. or do you yeah. have kids etc yeah. anyway um, in any case I think that um, so, what's so, sorry if I can yeah. just uh, regain my train of thought so what I was struggling with in terms of evaluating uh, the mayor based system which I think works well in Canada for its intended purpose right um, even though what I might desire out of the immigration program is more generous than what the intended purpose of this program is. Mm-hmm. What, I'm, what, I'm, what the tension I feel with uh, applying that program or a similar one uh, in the States is that it may not work for the actual objectives that an immigration program should have in the United States, right? So it's, it's not that... So my contention, mm-hmm. uh, my hypothesis is that the States doesn't need the same people that Canada needs. In fact, it does need a lot of these low-skilled workers that come in through the immigration uh, policy that it has now. And so if right. you move to a merit-based system, um, you're in danger of not fulfilling all the requirements that the United States actually has 
that could be fulfilled from its immigration policy. I think that that's, it's an interesting argument, but there are a few assumptions in the sense that, yeah. first, that we would need low-skilled workers moving into the future. I mean, I'd argue that the way we're heading, we perhaps aren't even going to need as many low-skilled workers. Um, uh, and it's true. Uh, immigrants usually occupy the jobs um, that but, uh, I mean, a we lot don't, of natives don't. Yeah. And so that's why it is the case that once um, you have um, machines to pick the oranges, you won't need as many Mexicans but, okay, in Florida. Like, I mean, something like that may... That's like really optimistic to think that that's somehow a factor in what... Trump is proposing, but like, there isn't, there's, there no, isn't a there's no way that oh, absolutely he's, not. he's considered, oh, what, what are the impacts of AI on the immigration system, you know, in 10 to 15 years? I, I, no, think, that, just, I think that there's just zero the consideration about that. <laughs> uh, that's totally, that, no, 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 for sure. Uh, the only issue, I mean, the only point I'm trying to raise is essentially one that uh, I think goes beyond perhaps what wait, Trump you're, is seeing. What, what, um, you, what you're saying is, because I was saying that it might not be um, fulfilling the actual objectives right. of what an immigration system should fulfill in the states, and you're saying those objectives aren't what I think they are. Right, because I think the target's moving. And um, uh, what is uh, unique about the American immigration system is that if you um, are... I think what's unique about immigration in the New World is that if you're born in a place like North America, like in Canada or America, you get uh, citizenship upon birth, Mm -hmm. um, which is the, the sort of law of the soil, which doesn't really happen in a lot of other places uh, in the world because they had been populated long before they were nation states. Yeah. And so they didn't need that policy. Um, so that's a specific unique policy to North America, which brings in a lot of immigrants to America. Mm-hmm. Um, that's preci- a lot of nationals. That's, and, that's, and the, and the, I mean, at yeah. the beginning stages, of course, the offer of free land. Right. Um, and all of this. Right. Um, free land, a little anymore. bit of credit. We don't some have seeds. that anymore. Unfortunately. Yeah, definitely not. Um, <laughs> Uh, but every every policy like that presents a certain set of challenges. Like the one about getting citizenship at birth presented the challenge of anchor babies, the idea that yes. a family would be able to have their child uh, in the United States while visiting, perhaps, mm-hmm. and, um, and be then able use to that then... that child to get green cards right. or residency of some other sort. And, yeah. and then once you get residency um, uh, or, you, or you receive a green card through your child, um, your siblings can receive it and then... Uh, your parents can, and then their brothers and sisters and it can. It spreads out um, like an infection. Of... It's it's a it's a complex web of um, not necessarily immediate relatives <laughs> yes. who receive yeah. who receive immigration. Yeah. Um, it operates uh, d- differently under the proposed plan yes. because you still receive citizenship at birth, obviously. Except um, what ends up happening is if your siblings, let's say, with somebody, that sibling relationship is not necessarily seen as an immediate familial relationship, and therefore not yeah. meeting the requirements. For, for example. Yeah. Um, so I think... Th- this is, this is, there's been a lot of pushback on this, but I, sure. I, I, I feel hypocritical uh, attacking the, the idea in any sense than the one that I just did, just that it doesn't fit well in the United States. I think that, I think that that's a fair argument, um, and I think that time will tell uh, if this policy were to go into place, whether or not it had a positive or negative consequence. Because I think that these targets are always... Um, shifting in the sense that what kind of workers are required, etc. I think that as we move into an age where um, there's a certain degree of uh, academic and a career proficiency that propels a country Mm -hmm. into the 21st century, that's what should be the objective of immigration policy. It's why I think that um, the merit-based system in Canada operates really well, where you get points if you speak English or French. Um, If you have a a degree, you're well-educated, um, you work in a job and have um, a high income, 
uh, can support yourself financially, mm-hmm. etc. And in Canada, of course, if you are generally well and healthy, which in America doesn't matter because the healthcare operates on an insurance-based model. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so there's indeed. the credit for that. But um, I think that uh, it's one of the one of the policies put forward by this Trump administration that I support. Uh, I would want to see it. Um, I would want to see more details about it. But um, it seems like uh, bringing the immigration numbers, um, it would naturally cut down immigration numbers. Sure. Um, of course. Because they say it'll be by half, by half. There, yeah. you, there you have it. Yeah. Uh, and I hope that the half that um, that start moving in are um, smarter, more educated, uh, can right. can really um, make America competitive for the twenty first century. And this is the this leads directly to the other sort of uh, problem or question that I have in this issue, which is that um, I mean these these types of conversations about immigration, the one the conversation that we just had is set in starkly economic terms. It's all right. about how it's going to um, benefit the the home country. And I obviously see uh, the, the, the appeal of that, that. I see the logic of that, which is that you can't... It's hard to expect a country to um, take legal immigration that it knows will hurt itself. Yeah, right. of course. Um, I mean, it wouldn't so, be really expected to do anything that would hurt and itself. So, and so my question is... Well, my question is... Um, is there a moral aspect or um yeah is there a moral aspect to immigration uh in the same sense that there is one for a refugee policy an asylum policy right we don't we take refugees not because right. it's good for us but because it's the right thing to do right right and so is there maybe a watered down version of that um for immigration that you know you allow immigration maybe because you think that uh a more diverse society is important um, or that I think I think that having a more diverse society is still an advantage for the home country yes if America said I want to have a more diverse society and therefore I should allow a lot more immigrants that's true that's it's true. still so not even, a benefit yeah. for the immigrants well, even then I just slipped right. back into the um, into, into giving reason to into the self-interest yeah. or this right. the, the economic uh-huh. um, framework I think right. uh, so, so maybe that's just the yeah. question I'm asking is there a moral component to, to immigration do you think yeah um is it good to allow more immigrants in and bad to allow less? A good in the sense of um, what's what's moral what's on the right? large scale, not yeah. just what's for right? your own people, yes. but for others. Yes. Um, I think what's uh, what's interesting about how nation states act is that there's usually, um, in my view, no particular moral incumbency upon it to act in certain ways that affect uh, people other than its own citizens. Because uh, the American government operates not just primarily uh, for the benefit of Americans, but can only operate for the benefit of Americans. Wow. So when no. when the when the United States gives out aid, it does that um, having the consequence of perhaps helping some people out sometime in some place. Mm-hmm. Except its its uh, reason is very self interested, and I think that that's the way it should be, because I don't think that. Um, that the United States should be using, or or any other country should really be using its resources. Yeah, I mean that's um, an argument from to help somebody else. The idea that the the United States would have no no authority given to it by its people, right? Um, to to hurt its own people, or to to do things that would be counterproductive. But you can always make the case that uh, that, that that you just made that right. whatever you do, it's going to benefit them in some way, even though it, it maybe in the short term. Right. It has a negative impact. Right. So, like, for I example, want, refugee, but I want, but refugee I policy. From, but I want to get away from that, that framework mm-hmm. and just speak, in, speak in, in moral terms. Sure. Right? 
Well, in moral terms, I mean... Um, because what you're saying is you're holding the, the nation state to a different set of moral standards. You're saying they can't, the, moral, the, the nation state can't be judged absolutely. on this, on this I, moral standard th- because it's a nation state. This may be controversial, I but I, I think that nation states don't really have moral, like, in essence, they can't really be judged on a moral standard. But because I, I know you, yes, yeah? so you think there, are, there is a moral standard. I think that there is. Why do you think it doesn't apply to nation states? I think that there is a moral standard, but it, the moral standard comes from uh, how that moral standard might be able to be enforced. And with nation states, mm. um, there is there is generally a right thing to do, and I think that um, it may be the right thing to do to um, to help people in countries where um, they need it most, and that's probably not America. So I think that but you can't see it as realistic. Uh, it's yeah, exactly, and it's and it's so unrealistic to to even assume that that would be a possibility. That when suggestions are made, for example. Um, of changing our policy of refugees, because we were talking about this, to adopting a quota system whereby um, an organization, let's say like the United Nations Human Rights Commission, decides that this year there are 100,000 refugees. And based on how rich your country is and how many refugees your country can support, uh, you are allocated a quota. Um, So the United States and and Qatar and uh, Luxembourg would have to take many and uh, countries like Ethiopia would not have to. Mm -hmm. Um, So... uh, the reason that model doesn't work is because it, it would require a country like the United States to succumb to uh, a, a foreign body. Yeah, and we, we it's, have to see it's not it's, an American tradition yeah. because yeah. in America, uh, people are highly concerned and we've, and about we've, being ruled from across the sea. Yeah, and we've seen recently <laughs> from from that country <laughs> that was ruling them across the sea that they have the same issue. Uh, the same issue that part of part of Brexit was obviously that we don't want to have to be to have to accept um, migrants. Right, right. Um, okay, so what, one of the, maybe there's a more specific way of framing this question because now we've gone into talking about what's moral for nation states and what what isn't. Uh-huh. Or yeah, but um, okay, so maybe um, maybe we we're not able to say taking more immigrants is good or taking less is bad. But is there anything sort of moral or wrong about uh, requiring things of these immigrants? Right. So, like, why mm-hmm. did why do these immigrants have to speak English? Mm-hmm. Why do they have to be well educated? Yeah, I mean, again, it, it goes back to the same principle. The I think that it would be, um, it would be wrong to. Uh, I think that the that the entire issue of let's say speaking English mm-hmm. um, boils down to the fact that a nation state wants uh, immigrants to speak the language of that country yeah. only because uh, it it is viewing the relationship between having that immigrant versus not having them as wanting to be overall beneficial mm-hmm. and so they see the calculus as being overall beneficial if yeah. someone can uh coming so to canada can speak these, english or French. still in these economic terms for sure. right and um i think that's that's how it usually pans out for example refugee policy doesn't make a lot of sense to me um since it may be it may be the right thing to do morally mm-hmm. maybe i say maybe because i think that uh many a times bringing someone from syria who's been part of a civil war to the united states is not the right approach um, and it's a waste of resources and doesn't help them or the country. Um, except let's say there was to an ar- uh, there w- but let's say there was an argument to be made that would be the moral thing to do. It would still run into the problem of having to classify the entire situation based on uh, how and why we are doing as much as we are and why we couldn't be doing more. Yeah. In the sense that... Because um, we can always be doing more. Exactly. Right. Even as individuals, we can always be doing more. Right, and so and so, if we're going to make these decisions, um, 
like let's say we need to we need to look out for the weakest among us in society yeah. Yeah. and as a society we've agreed to do that but we've only decided to look at it for a certain number of the weakest right. among us right no i mean that that's obviously a contradiction but it's the one where we bump up against exactly what we were talking about before which is uh the the, the uh realistic expectations of it right you were saying you can't realistically expect a nation state to uh, to harm its own interests through immigration, right? And what we what we've just talked about there is that there's only so far that you can reasonably expect a nation state to to give up or to right. to sacrifice in order to to save the least fortunate amongst us, right? But but I think the way I'm trying to frame this is that a nation state works only for its own people, mm-hmm. and so really there is there shouldn't be any room given to basically but anybody. That, but else. that's exactly why we have. Refugees, because it speaks to this different quality about us, this gener- just this generosity, uh, this sense of solidarity between right. human beings. Right. Right. And it, so it doesn't so, make a lot of sense to me, though. That's well, it's I'm not consistent say. with the idea right. of the nation state, but I'm not. It's, but I'm saying that's a good thing. Right. That, that we're that we're making we, this inconsistent yeah, because decision because we, we don't want to live in this this cold, self interested world. We want to still have a connection. Uh, and, I, and 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 uh, be able to be generous and be able to be. I think moral. I think I think here's where my disagreement stems from, um, and I think Christian, you'd be able to know about it because honestly, if people want to participate in philanthropy, they're free to do that, and yeah. most of the philanthropy that occurs occurs at a non-governmental level. Yeah. Um, organizations where people donate volitionally yeah. to be able to help someone in uh, Nigeria is fine, and I don't think that if we say that the United States can't give taxpayer money mm-hmm. to people in Nigeria. That, for me, is okay, because I don't think it's going to make the world any more colder. I think that if Americans save that taxpayer money, they might end up being more right. generous in the, in the, well, this in is, the overall. Well, this is just... So, in, in essence, I view government as being a um, an organization set up by the people that it governs. For the people. For the people. And it's just a tool. By the people. By the people, for the people. <laughs> and so, um, it's it, to me, is um, undue for the American government to collect taxpayer money on force and then give it to someone who it doesn't even serve. And I disagree. I think that that's part of the bargain anyway. Right well, there, you have it. <laughs> I think I think it all I think it all boils down to my to my case about this yeah. slippery slope. I mean, how far? Yeah. Uh, because in in Canada, one could start making the the uh, argument that uh, you know what the people in Syria need our money a whole lot than we do, so maybe we should uh, have a Syria tax. And morally, and spe- morally speaking, they do. They absolutely do. And so and so we should band ourselves to Syria and essentially share our tax income with them. Um, sounds and like sounds like uh, sounds like the overreaches like of socialism <laughs> going beyond your own borders um, yeah. to really include the entire. Well, world. that is that was the that was the, that was the whole idea of socialism that it would eliminate the nation state. It right. would wither on the vine. Right. Oh no! It it, it is definitely the idea, yeah. and that's why it's it's usually fiercely opposed by Americans. That's for yeah. sure. Anyway, so we've left a lot of things to talk about, and that just I mean I just thought of another one, which is the NDP leadership race that is happening now but uh but then we've also got to talk about healthcare, and then there's a bunch of foreign policy issues going on right now but maybe we'll leave that until next time that's right and in the meanwhile um let's pay attention to what happens in the white house and maybe we'll comment on it once we're back in the next few weeks thanks for listening to this episode of in conversation you can also listen to us on soundcloud itunes or wherever else you get your podcasts if you'd like to comment on anything I said, you can tweet me at Yasser Batalvi. And for anything I said, tweet me at Christian Pause. If you'd like to engage with the show, find us on Twitter at InConversation underscore. Thanks for listening.